You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. 2020, the year is almost over, thank heavens, but our economy is still struggling to recover from the COVID-19 shutdown. Can we see the way any clear? Well, this morning we talked to Mufi Hanuman, head of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association, which represents hoteliers in a very vital industry. Does more need to be done to encourage our tourists to wear their masks to help keep our community safe? The latest calls are from Honolulu's Mayor Kirk Caldwell and from Senate President Ron Kochi. I did, in fact, uh, respond to Senator Kochi. I told him all the things that we're doing. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm seeing this happen and so forth. I think what's happening now is an automatic tendency to say that tourists are responsible but for not wearing the mask and so forth, or that we should be doing more on the tourism side. But, you know, it, it goes beyond. I mean... When they leave the, the, the premises, when they leave the hotels, we also need to make sure that the community is doing their part and that law enforcement is also stepping up and, and not just issuing uh, warnings. I mean, you got to put some teeth in it. Let's, let's issue citations. Let's, let's attach a fine to it. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're doing a lot to try to get them to understand. But I also want to be clear. When I, I trip to Waikiki every day. I do daily walks to Waikiki, sometimes twice a day. And there's a lot of local people that are not wearing their mask. When they come into our building and they park in their garage and they go surfing, uh, groups of them are never wearing their masks. So it's a two-way street here. Yes, we need to make sure that when the visitors come here, and I think the industry is doing all it can from the Hawaii Tourism Authority, HVCB, out at the airport, when they come to the hotels. But also I think the community has to take responsibility. Let's keep in mind. The community spread really started, and the virus really started from people going to the mainland, visiting hot spots, and they brought it back here. It wasn't the tourists uh, that, that really uh, created this major problem that we had. So I'd like to see, and I said this to Senator Kochi and, and, and Mayor Caldwell, is that we all have to take responsibility for this. I mean, you watch TV at night, there's tons of commercials, tons of commercials, and great commercials having people... I'm reminding people to wear their masks, but why is there still a problem? <laughs> so to me, I think they've got to do a little more um, uh, t- t- tightening up and, and, and you know, that's a, that's a fine when people are given citations. Right now, they don't get an automatic fine. They go to court, and they, they, they can hopefully appeal it. I've, I've heard of several stories where they go to court, and the police officer is really busy with other duties. They don't show up, and the case is dismissed. So what are the hotels doing? Well, they know it. It's part of our, our standards of hygiene and protocol. Uh, it's signage all over the place when you go into the hotels. They are also reminded about that vis- uh, visually uh, as well as uh, uh, in in-room uh, in uh, video that, uh, that are displayed in each of the hotels. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's a situation where it's being taken seriously. Three things that they see all over the place about hygiene, washing your hands, uh, social distancing, uh, and, and wearing your mask. When they leave the hotels, once again, it's, um, I, I, you know, our, we're not police officers. We're not, we don't follow them outside the hotel to make sure when they visit a restaurant and they take off their mask to eat that they're going to put it back on automatically. We'll continue to redouble our efforts in that regard, but I think also, too, they have to look uh, in terms of how the community can, can assist. I don't, I don't see why 
local people can't remind tourists to wear their masks too. That's another way of helping out. Let's be the eyes and ears. You know, we, we've had neighborhood uh, police, uh, community, uh, neighborhood watch programs. And in Waikiki, we have an ambassador program. They all augment and complement in eyes and ears of police officers. I think it's no different now with the mask situation. You know, let's take matters into our own hands and remind visitors that are being careless and, and are not following the rules here to wear their masks. I, and I can't recall now if you were mayor during the APEC uh, conference, and I know we had that civil patrol with HPD where they were going out, you know, just keeping an eye on things, you know, uh, you know, but doing it with aloha. Absolutely, and I think that's where it comes down to right now. I do that all the time. And, in fact, I thank tourists for wearing a mask. I tell them thank you. Thanks for, uh, you know, when in Rome, when in Hawaii, do as the Romans, do as the Hawaiians. Wear your mask. A number of your members have opted not to open up right away. You know, some have delayed openings to, you know, November 1st, November 15th, some not till December. You know, what's the snapshot on on the properties? Well, I think right now um, by the end of October, uh, maybe between 65, 69% of the hotels will be open. When November rolls around, obviously the number increases to uh, 85 to 90%. And then certainly when we hit uh, December, uh, we're shooting for about 95% of them will be open. And there's a variety of reasons why some have uh, elected to wait uh, longer. Uh, one thing that uh, we cannot discount is uh, huge losses uh, that have been incurred as a result of being shuttered. Um, you know, from hundreds of thousands of dollars for individual properties, some of them as high as two and a half, three million dollars a month they've incurred by staying closed. Uh, and then all the uh, expenses that have been incurred as a result of investing in PPE, technology, apps, uh, doing the kind of things that we're making sure that when the visitor comes, they're well aware of the new normal, you know, reconfiguring floor plans, what have you. Uh, so these things have uh, cost money. And then the third thing is just not knowing what the demand's going to look like. We talked about we'd be very happy if we got to 5,000 visitors a day. It seems uh, that we've hit that mark, and it could get higher uh, before the month of October is over. So uh, all of those things, coupled with the new instructions of coming here, you may recall uh, the first couple of days, people were still coming to Hawaii, despite the widespread publicity and information that was being put out that you have to take a test to come here. Well, there were still some coming on the planes that did not take a test. So all of these things uh, suggest uh, that um, some of them want to take a wait-and-see approach and see how this whole thing is going to unfold, as well as uh, what the pent-up demand would be for uh, travel to Hawaii in this new normal. And so that's why they've delayed their their opening. But one thing's for sure, they are ready to go. Uh, The HLTA standards of hygiene and protocols have all been put into place. Uh, we also started a, uh, a campaign with the Hawaii Chamber of Commerce, the Hawaii Ag Foundation, Hawaii Airlines called Makau Kau. We are ready to show across the board uh, all the things that uh, a visitor will be able to experience when they come here in terms of uh, knowing that uh, uh, small businesses, restaurants, retail, attractions, uh, hotels will all be open and ready to welcome them here. You know, I did talk to someone who is uh, uh, volunteering at an event, I think, this weekend uh, with your group to help distribute food. Yes, it'll happen this Friday. It's 
part of our Aloha Later campaign, that we, and we're teaming up with Aloha Harvest, and we plan to give out 1,500 bundles of food at Aloha Stadium. This is the third uh, effort uh, that we've teamed up with Aloha Harvest, and uh, you know we've been averaging 1,000 to 1,500 bundles of food. So, um, you know, once again, the, the industry has been hurting, which is why it's so important uh, that we open up this economy and put people back to work. The numbers are staggering. Uh, you know, over 75% of businesses have gone through some kind of reduction, some kind of cut, some type of furlough uh, as a result of uh, being in this economic slump for the past several months. So um, uh, we still need to do these food drives, and when we can partner uh, with an organization uh, and they can help us in this regard, uh, we jump at that opportunity. And we're doing it on every island with other nonprofit groups. Uh, we're doing it on a Kauai, we're doing it on a Maui, we're doing it on a Hawaii island, all uh, to make sure that we can distribute uh, food to needy families. And what do you say to the concerns of the hotel workers union, you know, just about the fact that, you know, workers are being laid off and, you know, they were trying to get the most senior uh, members hired first. And they're just concerned that, uh, you know, the hotels are going to use this as an excuse to cut costs and hire people back at a cheaper rate. We all want everyone to be gainfully employed, but at the end of the day, with union hotels, there's a thing called collective bargaining, uh, and that's where those kind of issues uh, are resolved. That's where there's recall provisions in those in those agreements. There's, there's opportunities to negotiate with management. And so uh, keep in mind, Kathy, um, you know, we have hotels that have affiliations with Local 5. We have hotels that have labor affiliations with the ILWU. And then we have non-union hotels. So we just have one union in particular that can't seem to get their way 100% with the hotels that they bargain with. So they're turning to government to mandate to private employers that they must rehire everyone according to occupancy. Now, that's, that's not showing an understanding of how hotels operate. Occupancy rate is just one measurement. If you work in food and beverage, if you work in banks and catering, you go based on the number of events that have been booked, uh, or the number of reservations that have been made. That's how you determine when people are, have to be uh, coming to work uh, to staff you. Valley service is no different. That's based on daily arrivals and departures. There is a um, concern about uh, keeping you know guests and workers safe, and I know uh, you know we've been talking bubbles and you know just different concepts. There was a issue that arose over at Koalina about public access and, and limiting uh, locals, you know, getting into parking and getting into those, go those lagoons over there. Uh, any thoughts on that? It's a private area, but certainly, you know, when you talk about beach in Hawaii, you, the use of our ocean, you can't, you can't close that off. And so I'm glad that uh, uh, there's an agreement that has been reached to allow local people to continue to have access to the ocean area uh, and recreational areas and the like. So I think in this particular case, it always has to be looked upon that way, certainly with areas in Waikiki, too, where you know, none of the hotels can claim that they have exclusive use of the frontage of their hotel. If it's a beach area, it has to be opened up. It has to be accessible uh, to, to the public. And that was part of a conversation we had this morning with former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman, now head of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Pacific and Asian Affairs Council, now offering college credit for public high school students across the state to learn about the United Nations Global Goals. 
Learn more at paachawaii.org. You know, following the threat of the economic impact that COVID-19 has had on Hawaii, uh, we take a look at the state's wedding industry. You know, the islands have long been popular with honeymooners, and many companies have seen a massive decrease in business, as many rely almost solely on visitors planning a destination wedding. Uh, Lauren Carson is a wedding and event planner at Weddings of Hawaii, based here on Oahu. She spoke with the conversation's producer, Harrison Patino. She's cautiously optimistic as Hawaii begins to reopen itself to tourism. I think the wedding industry in Hawaii, most people know, is very popular for destinations. So, of course, we have a fair amount of local weddings. Hawaii brings in a significant amount of tourists, and that um, is impacting every possible wedding planning business that goes from, you know, your officiants and photographers to florists, to hair and makeup artists, to drivers, to venues, banquets. It's it's so widespread. Um and it's definitely been hit hard along with all of the other things that go along with the tourism industry. It's all of those jobs that you don't quite think of. Like most people think of hotels right now for, um, you know, being hit hard, but for the wedding industry, it's all of those vendors that, um, that go along with a wedding that are really, really impacted right now. Well, for a lot of sectors, 2019 was the year of uh, unprecedented growth. What was the state of the industry before the pandemic? Oh my goodness. 2020, I would I would probably say for us and, and many others was a record year. Um, just so many people wanting to come to Hawaii and celebrate and, you know, having that 2020 behind your wedding year. Um, so for us, and I know a lot of others, it was it was incredible. So many people coming from all over the world, not just U.S. mainland and, and Australia, but it's um, honestly from everywhere. So was your clientele coming primarily from out of state or were you drawing on a pretty significant local customer base as well? Well, for us significantly, we're, we're a destination um, planning company, so mostly out of state. Um, though we do have um, intimate local weddings, we're kind of known for being an intimate wedding planner. Um, so for smaller groups like 70 and under. So most of the local weddings have a larger size, so that's not really our um, market, but um, most of our clients are, yeah, from from out-of-state and international. So what do the next few months look like for your business? We, of course, want to be safe, and we're super eager for the opening. But I would say it's off. It's going to be off to a slow start, but we are definitely seeing um, the phones ring more and more and more people um, looking forward to coming and understanding the travel restrictions and just a lot of excitement. Um, you know, of course, it is the holiday season. So in general, it's a little bit slower time for, for celebrations, but um, very, very eager. We're seeing a lot of people, um, maybe not a lot, but definitely more interest now than than before. You are at least seeing a tangible rise in the phones ringing, people expressing an interest to want to get married? Yep, exactly. Yeah, and not so much just for this year, but even, you know, next year, there's a lot of weddings canceled, um, you know, all over the, all over the world, right? So um, people are looking at maybe just doing something smaller, more intimate, and Hawaii is the perfect place to do that. So I guess looking forward, what are your predictions for the industry as a whole? What things do you think are going to fundamentally change? You know, um, it's going to be the size. I think right now we're, we're not going to be seeing those significantly large weddings. And so that's where um, everyone's going to have to pivot and understand how do we, how do we have safe celebrations. Um, so I think it's going to change as far as looking at uh, – more intimate celebrations and 
getting more creative with design and that's kind of what we're doing right now is everyone's ready to go we have um you know everyone knows how to set up chairs and and uh, use hand sanitizer and face masks and follow protocols and um i think that's going to be the biggest thing is it'll be a few extra steps for safety but um everyone's ready for it now in your opinion is there any room for optimism right now (sighs) yes i do think so uh I think as long as we open and these tiers keep moving along, then yes, we have every reason to be optimistic. Hawaii is still one of the most breathtaking places in the world, and you know we have something special, and you know I don't think that'll ever change. Now, here on The Conversation, we recently spoke to the new head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, John DeFries, and he spoke of a mm-hmm. pent-up desire among tourists who want to visit Hawaii but can't, obviously, because of the crisis. Now, do you think the same mm-hmm. could be said for people looking to have a wedding here in Hawaii? I think so. I mean, it's, you know, some people are hesitant. I think the biggest thing we're going to see is the couple still want to come. It's just maybe all of their family and friends, not everyone's going to be able to travel, especially those you know, have health issues or elderly. Um, they're not going to want to travel. And so I think how that's going to impact tourism is, you know, for us, when we have a couple and they'd have you know, maybe 30 guests, that's, you know, a, a ton of flights and hotel rooms and dinners and shopping. And so if we cut that down even less than half, that is definitely going to impact the industry, right? You know, weddings will still happen, but on such a smaller scale. So he's absolutely right. It's, it's We're going to see less people able to travel, but couples will still want to come here because maybe they can't have the, the big dream wedding they planned at home. So you know, romantic getaway is still an option. Lauren, any final thoughts on the state of the industry going forward? No, not really. I'm very eager to see this year end, um, but end on a positive note. I'm, I'm happy that we're opening up, and, and uh, everyone's just so excited uh, to, to get through this year and, and for a brighter 2021. I think that's, that's probably everyone. <laughs> and that was Lauren Carlson a wedding and event planner with Weddings of Hawaii. She was talking with the Conversations producer, Harrison Patino, about the state of the industry amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamran Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org. Joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Level. He has a story with more about how Oahu may be moving into Tier 2, where more businesses can look forward to reopening. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. Great to be here again. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are really anxious for this next year. A lot of folks who want to go back to their gyms, a lot of those businesses that have been on hold, on pause. Lots of people that want to go back to the gyms, Catherine. Lots of people that want to get out of the house, too. And under this Tier 2 program, maybe they might start you know, being able to do that. Now, gyms and arcades are able to open at about 25% capacity, so about a quarter of what they uh, would usually be able to hold, though I've, I've heard from some people saying, you know, 
well, if you have a gym, is it really worth it to open at a quarter percent capacity? And uh, I can tell you that, you know, I go to 24-Hour Fitness. I'm a member there, and uh, the local gym here hasn't said anything yet about their reopening. So we're still going to have to wait and see about, um, you know, if we're going to be able to go back and work out again. Yeah, and the number of businesses on that list, I mean, we're talking bowling alleys, you know, uh, you know, helicopter tours. Bowling alleys, too, and the, the helicopters is a particularly important one. Helicopter tours and um, short-term vacation rentals are going to be able to start operating again. They couldn't do that under Tier 1, and this is coming just in time for Hawaii's tourism reopening that we're now in the midst of. I see that um, on Monday, that's the most recent day, we have data about 5,000 people arrived. Now, I know that's down from the 10,000 we saw late last week. Um, could be because we're in the middle of the week, but more tourists are flying in, and um, part of the reason I'm guessing that... Uh, and I'm guessing, you know, they'd be able to take advantage of uh, some of the businesses that are, are reopening, including those helicopters and vacation rentals, if they can get them. Right. And, you know, a lot of folks do want to go uh, sightseeing and they have their heart set on a on a helicopter ride, you know, whether it's Kauai or Maui or, or the Big Island. I mean, uh, a lot of folks uh, do want to, you know, uh, take advantage of their time here in the islands and, and, and see as much as they can. The rentals as well, uh, the legal uh, vacation rentals I know have been oh, just clamoring. They they want to open up. They have been. A, you know, they had one association, at least I, I know, um, was part of those lawsuits trying to get the city to overturn them. And legal's an important point to make. That's something that Mayor Kirk Caldwell yesterday really harped on. Uh, he wanted to make sure that only legal short-term rentals are, are um, operating right now. Uh, we also talked about getting out, and uh, part of the Tier 2 plan, uh, restaurants, uh, bowling alleys, and golf courses can all start allowing parties uh, of five more people, well, five people that aren't necessarily from the same household under Tier 1. You all had to be under the same roof to be able to go out. Gotcha. And then I know with the golf, it was kind of, you know, they were open and then they were closed again, so I'm sure uh, golfers are happy to get back on the the course, uh, whether you're a resident or, or a visitor. I'm sure there will be. I spoke to the State Association this morning for some more clarity on their new rules. Um, part of it is those larger groups that can get tea times now, so you could go golfing with your friends. Um, another rule that they're allowing is more riders in the carts uh, before they could just have one person. And along with having more cart riders, um, the Golf Association and the roads are also requiring uh, courses conduct more cleanings of those facilities and of those golf courts that uh, you may be utilizing. Yeah, and it is key, though, uh, that this Tier 2 thing is tied to our, our rate, right? We've got to make sure that we keep those uh, positive tests down. That's right. It's tied to the, it's pretty technical. They call it the seven-day moving average. And that's just basically the weekly average of cases. Uh, to get here, we have to stay under 100 for two weeks. And uh, we've just about done that. To get to Tier 3 for more business openings, Oahu is going to have to maintain that um, average weekly uh, positive rate uh, between 20 cases and 49 I know yesterday I think we had uh, 60, uh, more than 60 cases, so a little bit more ways to go. But, um, you know, everyone's hoping that within a week or two or, or 
two weeks or a month or so, uh, we can get to that next level of reopening. All right. Okay. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. And and uh, what's the saying I've heard? Uh, stay positive, test negative. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Blaze. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, offering palliative, hospice, and bereavement care since 1983, now hiring health care and administrative professionals. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next online info session for the Executive MBA is November 5th, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Well, we have certainly had no shortage of drama leading up to the 2020 presidential election. Polls may tell us who may be in the lead, but there are still signs of trouble ahead. How will the election be decided? Well, that's the question we're chewing on today on The Long View with our political analyst, Neil Milner. Good morning, Neil. Hi, Catherine. Now, that's the big question, so what's the answer? Well, it's the big. It's odd that that's a big question. I mean, usually we say who's going to win, and we find out on election night or soon after that for, under normal circumstances, a variety of reasons. You get fairly good information uh, on the basis of, you know, the statistical technology about who won this state and who won that state. But the main thing is that usually someone fairly early on, one of the candidates, concedes. Now, concession is totally unofficial. There's no requirement that a candidate has to concede at any time. And, in fact, we don't really officially elect a president until, well, let's say mid-December when the Electoral College gets counted. This time, there's a really good chance that the answer to who's going to be the next candidate, uh, the answer will be the next president, the answer will be on election night. Who knows? And there is a pretty good chance that we won't know for a while. So the first, that's really the first part. It's so much so that um, a number of people have suggested to the networks that you don't even declare a winner on election night, that that's what you usually want to do to say who wins. But this time you should be very careful and you should probably gear your coverage to saying, why there isn't going to be somebody that's winning that night. And you spend a good portion of election night explaining that to people. I, so that's the tip of the iceberg. Well, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, Hansel and Gretel, you know, there's this trail of breadcrumbs, and I'm afraid it leads to, like, you know, getting in the witch's oven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, breadcrumbs may be a little bit too sweet. It may <laughs> not be the term that I would use for the trail. But... Look, let's let's look at why this is the case. The, there's a number of reasons, some that uh, are very Donald Trump-oriented and some are less so. Uh, let's just start with, with the Donald Trump one. I mean, he said that the only way he can lose an election is if the election is rigged. So one possibility, so if he follows up on that and he does lose the electoral vote, let's say, um, which would be definitive, and he follows up on that, there you can see that the trouble would already be started. And it would be started on the basis of saying it's a rigged election, there's, there's lots of voter fraud uh, that has taken place. And, in fact, there's a whole lot of litigation already going on about voting procedures, and we'll get back to that. But uh, the other part of this is that, of course, because of the pandemic, you have many, many more people uh, 
possibly uh, over half of the of people in the United States voting by mail. So you have two issues here. And let's start by saying voting by mail, whatever the president says, and whenever other Republicans have said there is no evidence that this uh, is subject to voter fraud. Now, but there, is a, there are some complicating issues uh, with, the, with mail and ballots that are going to show up get manifested on election night. One, because there's so many, it takes time to count them. And, and uh, two, and this is very important to understand, there is a very big political difference in terms of who is likely to vote uh, by mail and who is likely to vote by, um, in person. Republicans are much more likely to vote in person, and Democrats are much more likely to vote by mail. So what you can have is what gets described as a red surge. A red surge would be the Republicans would be uh, that, that Trump would be way out in the lead early on. And then later on, when they count the ballots, because a lot of states don't count the mail-in ballots un- until election night, um, you would then have a, a, a Democratic surge. But you could see the President Trump being tempted to make a, a, a declare a victory on the basis of those early returns, That's, that there would be pressure in that kind of direction. And there is a, there's some research now on the huge difference that this can make in, in, in nine very competitive states where they don't count the mail-in ballots until last. The difference between just counting the Republican vote uh, just counting the votes for or in person and then counting the vote for mail is huge, like a 14 to 60 percent change. So you have that possibility of, of uh, trouble, especially if it's manifested in a certain way. And then uh, to summarize what's going to be a lot of this, is then you're going to have the potential for a whole lot of litigation. Litigation, there are hundreds of cases already about who can vote, who can't vote, um, they're going to certainly, a lot of them are going to be carried forward. There's probably, rough estimate, 600 lawyers uh, working on these things. About, let's say, we know about 300 for Republicans and probably about that many for the Democrats. So you have all of this kind of thing moving forward. It makes the last real legal contestant uh, presidential election, Bush versus Gore, sound a lot simple lot simpler, the, the good old days, because <laughs> that went to court, um, there was a lot of ferment, and ultimately it got kind of settled by the court. Maybe not the right way, but it got settled, and Gore conceded at that time. There wasn't anything else that was done. Everything is much more open now. So, And here is one other possibility. I, it sounds like I'm um, reading, I don't know, a, uh, a series of death certificates. But uh, there's one other possibility that we have to keep in mind, and that is, remember, the Electoral College chooses the president. The Electoral College, in, in the, 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 the way the, the wording is in the Constitution, the Electoral College, the, the state legislatures decide how to choose electors, basically. Now, over the years, it's moved from them picking them to having elections. But there seems to be some movement on the part of Republicans to convince Republican governors in states that the Democrats might carry 
and Republican legislators in those states where they have a, a Republican majority um, to essentially appoint their own electors. In other words, if Trump won, I don't know, let's say North, North Carolina, um, where essentially the legislature would just say, too bad, we're going to appoint our own electors. And that seems to be uh, somewhat possible and also quite feasibly legal. Okay, then you got all of that. If none of that picks the presidency, then it goes in. If, if there are conflicts over the Electoral College, then, then they get involved in Congress and the House and, and in the Senate, never mind all those details. But ultimately, if you can't pick a president, you know, if, if, if the Electoral College doesn't pick a president, then you have what's called a contingent election, which means that the House of Representatives essentially picks a president. Now, all of these things, all of these what-ifs are very different because, I mean, who knows if they're going to happen, but the fact that we're considering them now, the fact that there was a group of people, a very prestigious group of people, who spent a whole lot of time gaming all these scenarios so that people could be ready for them, suggests the kind of ferment that is, that's here. I know. I mean, I, 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 I laughed you know, when you said good old days, but it's true. Yeah. You know, the well, days when you, when you had a, a candidate, yeah. uh, you know, concede gracefully, you know, show some class. And, you know, yeah, I don't know, that's, sure. just not, that's maybe not happened. Well, and let me end with wait, here's more. And never mind about the uh, foreign interference in the election. The other thing to remember is that the last time we had a real, a real contest and it ended up in the courts was Bush versus Gore. Um, Al Gore had told his people from the beginning of that litigation, we're keeping this a legal issue, not a political issue. I don't want people out on the streets demonstrating. The demonstra- and the Republicans did demonstrate. The, the, uh, uh, this time the Democrats for sure will not follow this. This will become, if it gets into the courts, will become a profoundly political issue with lots of protest, lots of ferment, and you've got lots of people who, you know, there's, a, there's a, a strong minority of people who are willing to violate democratic norms to get the candidate they want, or to put it another way, to accept Trump's notion that the election was, was rigged. So that's where we stand. The election all the way through this process is just another reflection of the polarization of society. Yeah, we just want to make sure that everybody is safe this election day and post-election uh, and uh, can get out there and, and, and vote. I think that, Thanks. at least at least do your part, um, and hope that this thing gets settled in some way that doesn't threaten our democracy and whoever thinks about that in, in most elections. I know, huh? Yeah. Uh, on a whole, the good old days. Thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. All righty. Neil Milner is a retired professor of political science and a contributing editor of our segment, The Long View.